pretty consistently when you ask people, and people have done polls on this, what are the things you're most afraid of? Of course, the first is usually death, and that sounds pretty reasonable. You know, the second is usually humiliation. It's one of the things that's tied up to, why don't you like public speaking? I'm afraid I'll say something stupid. Or, why do you not want to try this new thing? Because I'm afraid I will mess up. It's one of the reasons why children learn languages so much better than adults do, because they're not afraid to make mistakes, and adults are desperately afraid of insulting somebody or making themselves look dumb. So in fact, when you think about what the most terrible things you can do to a human being are, it is to kill them in a very embarrassing way. Now I think about that, and I, I know that's something that we think is a, is a little silly, um, but of course in many ways, people throughout the ages have known this. And they've known this, and that is why so often the way that people have been executed as public criminals is done in a way that maximizes their humiliation and their shame. Today I'd like to speak to you about what it means to say that Jesus is king, and particularly to ask us to question why it is the church, in her wisdom, chooses to read a passage like we heard today when we celebrate Christ the king. But the passage we have today is not the passage of Jesus with a sword conquering his enemies. It is instead the passage in which Jesus is mocked, shamed, humiliated, and basically made to be dehumanized in the process of him being killed. And yet this is the passage where when we look at Christ the King, the church says this is the way to understand Jesus' kingship. I'd like to meditate on that a little bit today in a way that I think helps us understand what kind of king Jesus is, also helps us understand what the body of Christ the church is meant to be, and finally is a challenge for us to look at what we are meant to be as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Now I mentioned to you today that uh, this is a way of killing somebody that the Romans did that focused on their humiliation and their shame. Now many times, especially when I was younger and I listened to the things that, that were told about the crucifixion, my first thought would go to how painful that must be. And if you've ever been to um, you know, a Roman Catholic church in Central America or sometimes in the Mediterranean, sometimes what you'll see are depictions that particularly focus on its goriness. And I think you understand what I mean. Lots and lots of blood, lots of sweat, lots of kind of relish on the face of the soldiers as they lay in the whip. But as you read through the scriptures, what's most interesting in all the crucifixion accounts is not the pain that Jesus goes through. That's not actually mentioned very much. What is mentioned again and again is the ways that soldiers and ways the religious authorities and the way that the Roman officials go out of their way to embarrass and to humiliate him. What is it we find in the passage we have today? What's repeated again and again? They scoff and they say, if you are the king of the Jews, come down off the cross and save yourself. Listen to what they say while Jesus is crucified. The leaders scoffed at him, verse 35 in Luke chapter 23. The leaders scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Of course, in the other gospel accounts, we find that even more drawn out. We find how it is that when Jesus is brought uh, to, to Pilate, the soldiers put a robe over him and they give him a, a reed of uh, a staff that's just a, a reed. They, they weave together a crown of thorns and stick it on his head. 
They blindfold him and smack him and say, tell us, prophesy, who hit you? And then they mockingly kneel before him and say, hail, king of the Jews. He's spit upon, he's tied to a pole and whipped. And what that does is not just cause pain, public humiliation. We find that again and again throughout this entire process, this is something that Romans did to people who were accused of trying to subvert Roman authority. And they did this in the most maximally humiliating and shaming way because they wanted to set this person as an example. If you fight Rome, you will be embarrassed, you will be shamed, you will be dehumanized, and you will, in fact, be wiped off the face of the earth, not just killed. So they march him to a high hill outside of Jerusalem called the Skull, and they crucify him. Even when the soldiers offer him wine and he's thirsty, what do they offer instead of a cupbearer to the king? A cupbearer who brings wine that is sour and causes his cracked lips to be hurt. So what all of this is the shame and the humiliation. And then Jesus, of course, dies. And we see that the sky grows dark and the temple veil is cut in two and there's an earthquake. All of these things are things that we see and we're meant to meditate on in the shame and the humiliation of Jesus. Isn't this an odd thing for Christians to hold on to when they're talking about Jesus whom they follow? If you think about all the ways that Jesus did great things, he casts out demons, Jesus does great things like feed 5,000 people, all that I get that the gospel writers would include in their account, but every single one of the gospels spends at least a quarter of their time, and usually more, at least a quarter of their time in the gospel describing in detail the crucifixion of Jesus and eventually his death. Two things that we all want to avoid, humiliation and death, is what they focus on. Now sadly, many times throughout Christian history, we've looked at that and said, well, I guess humiliation is a good thing. I guess uh, suffering and torture are not a bad thing either. Perhaps you've read sometimes meditations or sometimes the way that people talk. We look at Jesus as the victim who is a person who is crushed. And we look at that and say victimhood is something good. And many times people have rightly criticized the church. Karl Marx, for example, famously did. He said, you have nothing to lose but your chains. He says, what does Christianity teach you to do except to be a sniveling worm to let yourself get beat up by people around them? So is that true? Why is it that the church holds these things up? One of the things that's most interesting about all of these accounts is something that is easy to miss and yet was abundantly clear to the early church and throughout the Middle Ages and has been lost so often to us. This is not an account of humiliation being glorified. It is not the account of death being glorified. It is the account of a mighty, glorious, wonderful king who said, my mission is so deeply important, I am willing to suffer these things for the sake of accomplishing something great. It is not the story of a person who has been defeated. Instead, it is the story of a king whose mighty power is so great and whose love for his people is so great. He will set aside all the trappings of glory that were due to him in order to win a victory, the victory that he wants to win for the sake of his humble people. In fact, when you look through this passages of Jesus' crucifixion with the right eye, you begin to realize that throughout all of this, Jesus' attitude is never the attitude of a broken victim. It is always the attitude of a dignified king in the midst of a terrible situation. Listen to the way that Luke describes Jesus' actions and his attitudes. When Jesus is earlier on brought before Pontius Pilate, or brought, excuse me, before um, Herod, this is what he says. When Herod saw Jesus, verse 8 of chapter 23, 
He was very glad he'd been wanted to see him for a long time because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see him perform a sign. He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests, the scribes, stood by, vehemently accusing him. Even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then he put on an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. What does Jesus do? Herod says, dance for me, slave. Show some little magic trick. And Jesus, with quiet dignity, says nothing. I'm not here to justify myself or to do what you tell me to do. And although, of course, Herod in, uh, intends this to mock Jesus, the elegant robe is a key. It is a pointer. It is a sign to us about what's really going on. Here, Herod, a weak despot, stands in front of the true king. Later on, what happens? When we hear Jesus is there on the uh, cross, what does Jesus say? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, one of the things that we don't realize in the modern world, which has a modern court system and the Supreme Court in which judges try cases, in the ancient world, the highest court was the king. Perhaps you remember the story of how St. Paul was arrested, and after he was arrested and stood trial, he appealed to the emperor. He, as a Roman citizen, had the right to appeal to the highest court of the land to have his trial be said, and his judgment be said, by the emperor. Because the emperor is the one who held justice in his hand. And what does Jesus say? Father, here's my direction. Forgive these people. Whatever a lower court, whatever my followers may feel about them, whatever it is that they might want to condemn them, I, in my kingly power, ask that they be forgiven. What happens when Jesus is derided by the, the, the criminals? And one of the criminals says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? He says, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not a ridiculous thing that seems to have been said by a man who is on the cross to another man on the cross who is pinned there and has no power. And yet, what does Jesus say? I am the king and I have the power to grant citizenship in my kingdom to anybody I wish. And I grant you citizenship. What does Jesus do after he has gotten through the end of his time on the cross? Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What happens? It's not, they've bested me. The soldiers took my spirit from me. I've chosen now is the time to commend my spirit to you. In the other gospel accounts, it tells us even clearer things. Jesus says at the end, and the very last thing he says, it is finished, and that he gives up his spirit, and he breathes his last. In fact, with that word, it is finished, is better translated as it is accomplished. I have accomplished my mission. I have done what I'm required to do, and now I lay down my life. John's gospel is abundantly clear in this in chapter 10. For Jesus says in chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. And I have received this command from my Father. Jesus says, I am not doing this because these people arrested me. I'm not doing this because I have no power and because I'm a slave and not a king. He says, I am a king who is willing to take the part of a slave in order to ensure that I achieve the victory my Father has commanded me to give. It is a kingly act. What is amazing about this is not that Jesus loses all things. What is amazing about this is that he is a king who is willing to let go of all the things due to him in order to win a victory for humble people like you and me. And that is something that is revolutionary about what it means to be a king of the Jews. 
we look at um, this, one of the things that I was thinking of as I was preparing this was a few weeks ago, on Remembrance Day weekend, some of you came to watch um, They Shall Not Grow Old. And this was a documentary Peter Jackson directed, uh, lovingly as an act of love to, uh, at the end of a hundred years after the armistice in 1918, the end of the First World War. I'd seen many documentaries about the First World War, and also when I was a younger person, I was really for a long period into military history, and I read everything I could about World War II, and everything I could about the Vietnam War, and I read about the, the tactics and the things that went on, and it's, it's fascinating because in many ways, even the, the Second World War had the sense of nobility sometimes and romance to the, to the fighting. My great uncle served in North Africa and was in Sicily and, and, and served in the Italian campaign, and and he told me about the times of fighting of Rommel uh, in the, the, the desert of North Africa. Terrible, of course, terrible loss of life, but also amazing. Perhaps you watched that, um, uh, that movie a few years ago, The English Patient, which was set in this romantic setting of, of North Africa in the Second World War. What was amazing to me about this documentary in the First World War is that it didn't talk about tactics, it didn't interview generals, it didn't talk about the effects uh, on the global political stage. All it did was it listened to the stories of men who had served in the British Army in the trenches from 1914 to 1918. What was so amazing about this, and these were interviews recorded many years ago before that generation died away, their description of what daily life in those trenches was like. And it was shocking to me. I knew this, I'd read about it, but then you see these pictures of rats piled up high because they were scurrying through the trenches through the entire time all these soldiers were there. Pictures of them with trench foot because they had been standing for weeks and months in mud that is filled with urine and filth and who knows what, and so it infected even their toes that they had this daily irritation from it. But how the stench of death wafted over the battlefield all the time and how it is that in all of those sorts of difficulties and terrible things and lice and terrible conditions, when the whistle was blown and they told them to go over the top, these young men who had suffered so much indignity did not go to fight a romantic sword battle with anybody else. They crawled through mud that often went up to their hips and died in the midst of that mud in order to win a victory. I looked at that and I couldn't help but think, what is it that motivated these men? What motivated them was a loyalty to their king and their country. And yes, their king and country often failed them. But they were willing to put up with every indignity in order to win the victory. And eventually they did. What we're hearing here in this gospel account is as if these infantrymen were suddenly joined by the king of England, who came down into this trench and lived with the lice and with the rats and with the mud and with the gangrene and trench foot and laid down his life with them. What was amazing is that that is not what kings of this earth do. They enjoy the trappings, and even good kings who care about their soldiers and underlings do not die with them. And yet Jesus says, this is exactly the kind of king that I am. And one of the things that's so amazing about Christian faith is the way that Europe came to be a Christian continent. Because when the Roman Empire fell and there was no state to give them great honors by being a bishop or nothing that would win them great favor, why is it that my ancestors in the British Isles, that my wife's ancestors in Germany, who worshipped Odin and Thor and the mighty gods of the pagan world, why is it that they would come to worship a carpenter who had been crucified in Jerusalem so many thousands of miles away? It was not because they saw in him some pathetic victim. You know what it was? They were used to worshiping gods who were great and mighty and won victories, but who cared nothing for the people who worshipped them. 
Perhaps those of you who have ever read Shakespeare in King Lear, you remember the Duke of Gloucester famously said, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods that kill us for their sport. That was so often the way that the pagan world fought in my ancestors' time. Those strong gods were willing to fight victories and to use us to win those victories, but they would, do one, they would never do that one thing that Jesus would do. A mighty king who's capable of winning a victory will be willing to take on our lot and our shame and our indignity in order to free us. And that revolutionized those pagan warriors who were so used to living with gods who cared nothing for them, found in Jesus a king who truly did love them, even though they were weak. So what do we worship when we say that Jesus is the king? We worship a king who is mighty, who is great, who is victorious, whose love is so great he's willing to take all the trappings of glory and cast it aside for our sake. And that is the reason we celebrate Christ the King and read of his crucifixion. But I'll tell you, it is good to look at this and good to be warmed by the thought of this mighty King who loves us, but it is also a challenge for us because we as the church are the body of Christ on earth. This is clear again and again through the New Testament. What does it mean to be the body of Christ? It means to exercise that victory, to exercise that power, in the midst of indignities and humiliation. And sadly, the times of the trappings of glory of the church, at least in this country, are probably not going to be recaptured again in my lifetime. I was really made conscious of this when I was watching something about The Crown. Uh, The Crown is a Netflix series about Queen Elizabeth. It's really amazing. It's on its third season now, and it's really beautiful in lots of ways and profound. But Tabia and I were watching it just the other night, this uh, particular episode was the episode in which a disaster struck a Welsh village. And this Welsh village had uh, coal mining as its main industry. And so over the years, the tailings, which are the leftover bits from coal mining, were piled up outside of the village. And they were piled up three times higher than regulations allowed. And yet nobody really took responsibility to say this needs to be dealt with. And so one day in the 1960s, and after it had been raining and raining and raining and raining in an amazing way, these tailings that had been so high collapsed. And they ran down into the village and they crushed a schoolhouse. And 116 children were killed. It was a terrible, terrible disaster in Welsh history. But here's what really struck me about it. The Queen's husband, Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, goes to visit, and he goes and and does the state visit, and he shakes hands, and he meets people, and he expresses sorrow, and then he goes to the funeral of these 116 children, and they had laid out all of these little caskets in the shape of a cross, so a giant trench in which one long part of the cross transected by another part of the cross, and all of these little graves are placed there, and they're covered in And the clergyman, presumably from the Church of England or the Church of Wales, is speaking there and reading Bible verses. And then everyone breaks out in song. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. What's amazing about this is the Duke of Edinburgh comes back and he speaks to the Queen about what he saw. And he said, nobody could listen to the song being sung without being broken into a thousand pieces. And this is the stoic, stiff upper lip, British royal family broken in a thousand pieces when the people of Wales are singing this song because they have nothing else to do. What was amazing is just before that he had said, I could sense not just the grief, not just the sorrow, but the rage behind every set of eyes in that village. But nobody took responsibility. Nobody cared. And nobody would do anything. And with their rage, what do they do? They come together and they sing, Jesus, let me to thy bosom fly because there's nowhere else I can go. You are our last hope. 
And I look at that and I was so amazed by it because there at that moment, this village comes together, this culture comes together and expresses its rage, its passion, its grief, its brokenness by singing and crying out to Jesus. And that is now lost. There are still families that love each other in the midst of tragedy. There are still friends that are helpful to you, but never again in my lifetime will a disaster happen in this place of Barhaven and people come together to sing to Jesus because he brings them together with his comfort and that is lost and it is a tragedy. And I live, and I'm sure many of you feel that weight in the church today that we go into the world and we are known as at best an irrelevant extra and at worst some kind of evil parasite that works its way through a society poisoning it while we forget that the very reason we have compassion on the weak, the very reason we are held to a higher standard is because we have followed Jesus who loves the weak, not like my pagan ancestors who cared nothing for the weaknesses and sorrows of those who are broken. Think about what the church does like it did yesterday. Challenge special needs children who are not a part of any group because no group really lets them fit in comes here on a Saturday afternoon to fit in, to play, to be part of a club and to be cared for by people who love them because they are made in God's image and not because of their abilities. What are we called to do as a church? To accept that humiliation, accept that being ignored and sometimes slandered is part of what it means to be in the church Nevertheless, not to be let that, let that cast us aside from the important thing we do, which is to bring the glory and the grace and the dignity and the power of Christ in the midst of weakness and shadow. We are called as a church to love the weak. We are called as a church to stand up for the poor and to demand justice, even as we recognize that we are powerless in the world's eyes. We have the power of this mighty king who humili- let himself be humiliated for the sake of us, his sheep. What does it mean for us? What it means for us, you and me, it means we need to ask ourselves not, how can we beat ourselves up? How can we let ourselves be humiliated? How can we let ourselves be doormats? That's not what Christ is. It is how can we bring the grace and power of the King to times and places that are humiliating, dark, and sorrowful. What are we called to do? Whenever I tell you we're supposed to love that neighbor who's cranky and difficult, whenever I tell you we're to be patient with our children, whenever I tell you we're to forgive our boss at the office, all of these things are humiliations. Yet why do we do it? Not because we're worthless, but because we have so great a worth that Christ was willing to be humiliated that we might be saved. We are to do the same thing for those who are broken, those who are in the grip of sin and death. Not to regard shame, not to regard humiliation, but to simply ask ourselves, what is the mission God gives us? I'm willing to accept the difficulty and humiliation that comes with it if it brings about the redemption and the power of Christ in this person's life. So what's the hope? What's the greatness? When we are so devoid of power and we feel humiliated and ashamed, we have a king who is there with us and his power will work through us even when the world ignores us. For the power working through us is the same power that crushed the grave, that broke open the seal of that tomb, beat down Satan under his feet, and he is the same one who intercedes the right hand of the Father on our behalf, and one day will come to set all things right. Let's set our hope on Christ, for he is a mighty king, but a king who does not stand on ceremony, a king instead who loves his people so dearly that no muck, no humiliation or shame will keep us, keep him from saving us.